Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and the ideas that are shaping our world. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about race, language, war, mental health, the future of humanity, and the meaning of life. According to a report from the British Council in 2018, the study of modern languages is in decline. In 2002, around three quarters of GCSE pupils studied a language other than English. But within a decade of the government making modern languages no longer compulsory at GCSE, that level had dropped to just 40%. Over the same period, Google Translate imposed itself on our culture, and today it supports over 100 languages, translating more than 100 billion words per day for more than 500 million users. All the while, minority languages are facing extinction around the world. By the reckoning of the Language Conservancy newsletter, more than 2,500 minority languages are in grave danger of extinction today. And according to the Cambridge Handbook of Endangered Languages, nearly 90% may have died out by the end of the century. Does any of this matter? Surely fewer languages, perhaps only one, would facilitate wider and easier communication. Perhaps so, but many of us sense that there is something wrong with this. After all, subtle, culturally embedded, linguistic communication is a key characteristic of being human. And if different languages embody different cultures... Losing them means losing something of our complex humanity. Alexandra Aikenwald is an Australian Laureate Fellow, Distinguished Professor and Foundation Director of the Language and Culture Research Centre at the James Cook University in Australia. She's a world expert in linguistics and languages. And her new book examines the birth, life, endless fecundity and the impending death of languages. And it's called I Saw the Dog, How Language Works. Alexandra, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thanks, Nick, and nice to talk to you. Now, I have to begin by admitting to feeling something like a bit of a fraud. I took French GCSE and then dropped it more or less as soon as I left the exam room. So while I'm fascinated by language, I'm also somewhat ignorant. I read in your biography that you speak English, Estonian, Hebrew, Portuguese, Tariana, French, German, Tokpisin or Tokpisin, yeah. a Papuan language, and that you've also studied Sanskrit, Akkadian, Lithuanian, Finnish, Hungarian, Arabic, Italian and ancient Greek. So my first question is simply how? Are you one of those people to whom language comes naturally? Well, thanks for this question, Nick. No, I'm not that sort of person to whom language comes naturally, but... I think it's more obstinacy and curiosity because I really am fascinated by trying to work out how languages work and what makes them tick and how they are related and why is it that we have so many different languages. Let's start, first of all, by talking about primitive languages. But I'm deliberately putting primitive in, in heavy scare quotes there because one of the lies you scotch in the book 
is that there are some languages that are primitive. And not only is that not true, but the impression I got from reading your book was that some of those languages that were historically dismissed as being quote-unquote primitive are actually considerably more technically sophisticated and difficult than many of the European languages. Is that the case? Where does this idea of primitive languages come from and why is it not a valid idea? Well, uh, to cut a very, very long story short, it comes from the colonial attitudes of conceited, arrogant, if I may say so, white invaders saying, look, all these will come to, to see these primitive people. So their language is also primitive because we're the superior people who speak a sophisticated language. Then it turns out that they learn English or whatever it is, French or German, quicker than we learn their languages. Something is a food there. There is something in their languages that is actually not primitive. It is a very interesting question whether all languages are equally complex. There is a scholar who is a friend of ours, Guy Deutscher, and uh, at some point he gave a talk at our center to the effect of whether all languages are equally complex. Well, they are not all equally complex, but none of the natural languages are simple enough to be called primitive. Each of them has a tradition, each of them is capable of expressing anything you want to express. And indeed, it is the case that some languages are quite complicated in their structure. So, when in English I want to say, Nick, I will come and see you tomorrow morning. I will come and see you tomorrow morning. So I have eight words. In a language like Jarawara that's spoken in southern Amazonia, I do it in one word. So it's really quite complicated. Yes. One of the elements in this condescension was the European commitment to written language, wasn't it? Europeans had the idea or Westerners had the idea that languages that had made their way from speech to paper were therefore more sophisticated, more civilised, more cultured. But that emphatically isn't the case, is it? Well, this definitely isn't the case. Human language goes back at least 60,000 years ago, or maybe 100,000. But writing is much more recent. It's probably not more than five, 6,000 years ago. One thing we do as field linguists is create orthographies for people. But then people say it's called reducing a language to writing because a lot of the wealth of the language is actually lost. Well, I was going to ask, is there a sense in which when you start writing a language down, it almost dies a little bit? You, you reduce it and you limit its natural kind of living fecundity. Is that right? Well, I don't think so. I want to believe that we're giving it an extra lease on life. It's just an extra dimension. I just gave a talk last week in Spain. There is an evidential in Tariana, which refers to assumed information. And that's what you use when you tell traditional stories. But you have to be a really well-established elder to have what people call the epistemic right for a traditional story. Anyone, just like I, especially a woman, cannot just come out from the blue and I'm going to tell you a traditional story. So there is a restriction on that. Now, the same evidential people are using for translations and for anything they read in a book. So the fact that they now have reading and they have writing and they have translation, now it's being taught at school, it gives the language just this little extra, I would say an extra spark. 
But it, it happens with the languages that are endangered. People don't really remember everything. And they say, oh, no, no, but it's written down. We don't have to remember. I think, uh-huh, okay. So in this way, you are right. Uh, reducing a language to writing is a little bit dangerous. One of the things that I was struck by your book was the point that in pre-written languages, there are some absolutely astonishing feats of memory. People are able to recall vast tracts of sort of literature and law mm-hmm. and stories that are completely beyond the powers of most Westerners like myself who have difficulty remembering anything. In European culture, people used to be able to recount the entirety of the Iliad or the Odyssey or vast tracts of the Old Testament that would be beyond us today. And that's quite common, isn't it? It actually is. And oftentimes people are opposed to writing things down because they're afraid that this memory will go. I had such experience with Manambu, that language that has uh, rather interesting genders. Uh, Everything that's masculine is long, everything that's feminine is round and small. I was working with some older people and we were trying to retrieve the names for various objects. The names belong to each clan, so each clan guards them with their life. And I produced a notebook. I said, well, maybe my memory is not great. I'm a European, so maybe I could write them down. And then one man looked at me with suspicion and said, yeah, but then you'll take it back to Canberra and then other people will have access to it. But then others who were more in with the time said, no, 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 let her write them down because then we will get a copy and that it will be easier to learn from, for our children. So again, it's like reading and writing and orthography is coming in. People are using it for their yes. own purposes. Once yes. a language becomes endangered, then the fecundity goes Everyone is saying the Great Barrier Reef used to be so colourful, it's losing its colour. And it's the same with language. It's like incredibly colourful. And when the language is learned a little bit less, it's almost Mm. like you have this discoloration of the Great Barrier Reef. So... Well, I definitely want to talk about the decline of languages, but I want to ask first about the origin of language. People are fascinated by the origins of language. And you've already mentioned that The window is estimated between 60 and 100,000 years. What, if anything, do we know about the origins of human language and when and where it emerged and what it might have sounded like? Well, the point is that there are umpteen theories, but hardly any real evidence. In 1866, the newly formed Société Linguistique de Paris, Linguistic Society of Paris, introduced its statute number two which says no more discussions of the origin of language because there is nothing new to say. There were lots of crackpot theories, for instance, that the Chinese was the original proto-language of humankind because every word is a syllable, I suppose. Mm. And humans learned how to sing and speak from the birds because there are all these bird sounds. But Ferdinand de Saussure, the founder of modern linguistics, was about maybe 1900, said, do not ask questions about the origin of language. It is as childish as asking about the origin of the river Hon, just the river Mm. there. Nowadays, there is a very interesting discipline called language evolution. And indeed, there are new developments in cognitive science in the way monkeys communicate in the way non-humans communicate and the way languages have these very enticing similarities that may be suggestive of something. But 
it's very, very hard to say what they're suggesting. And maybe we could talk about it, I would say, maybe 300 years' time. Maybe we'll (laughs) discover something. I'll come back to you. Is there any consensus about whether language emerged once or multiple times in the human species? No, no, no. There is absolutely no consensus. There is, of course, the theory that humans came from Africa, so maybe language originated in Africa. Well, Africa is not a small place, so it is all, Mm. it again becomes incredibly conjectural. And I can assure you that the whole sort of problem is that there are more theories than facts, I think. We just don't have the technique to reconstruct languages beyond, say, 8,000 years, if we're lucky. I think Bob Dixon, in his book, uh, The Rise and Fall of Languages, puts the limit of our reconstruction, maybe 8,000, 10,000 years. Beyond that, could be anything. Let me ask then about something that we can be a bit more a little bit more confident about, which was the sheer fecundity of language, the range and number of languages that comes across very clearly in the book, and in particular, the number of languages in certain areas. I think I'm right in saying that you write that there are over 350 languages in the Amazon region, over a 1,000 languages on the island of New Guinea. But perhaps most strikingly, that of those 1,000 languages, there are something like 60 families. Now, it's probably worth explaining what a language family is. Uh, it's a bit like Indo-European would be a language family, is that yes, right? Yes, exactly right. Indo-European or Semitic. Actually, Semitic is part of a bigger family called Afro-Asiatic, which includes Berber, my first sort of love. So language families are quite big, aren't they, in themselves? There's a lot of languages within a family. Yeah, but some can be very small. Like, for okay. instance, well, Finno-Ugric family is big, and again, it's part of a bigger one. But the family where the word cannibal comes from, it's Carib family. And there are about maybe... No, I think 20, 30 languages. So there are some small families, but in uh, New Guinea, the whole problem is that you have lots of families, some of which consist of, say, five languages, like a family to which Manambu belongs. So it's only five languages in one family. Then it is spoken next to another family called Kuomonukuma, which just have two languages. So uh, why this fragmentation? It's probably due to geography. Because in the northeast, where I work most of the time, it's just incredible. You have swamps, you have two villages separated by an impassable swamp. Of course, they will keep their, themselves as different as possible. And for thousands of years, then you wouldn't know they're related. Then there will be a completely different language spoken on top of a mountain. Again, totally unrelated. And then there is also the attitude. People are not exactly friendly to each other. And so, even if they're very closely related, they don't like each other. And so they have this, what, schismogenesis. It's like a schism, a genesis of a schism. They just want to sound different. And so that maintains diversity at that level. Of course, the longer diversity continues, the more we lose the track. What's fascinating in that is that languages then seem to preserve the landscape and the kind of cultural relationship. They become the living embodiment of the places in which they're spoken and the relationships between the peoples who speak them. Unfortunately for analysts who want quick solutions, languages move around. It's an absolutely stunning example from Edward Sapir, another founding father of modern linguistics, about the Navajo form for corn, which basically translates as foreign food. 
because mm. their ancestors who came from the north didn't have corn. Corn grows mm. where the Navajo are now in south, the southwest of the United States, but it wouldn't grow in the north of Canada or North America. And so it sort of shows you that the language bears the imprint of movements as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading Our Times. Don't miss our other episodes on war, the future, race, language, and much more. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not take 30 seconds to subscribe, share an episode with a friend, leave us a review, or give us a quick rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners to find us. You mentioned North American or Native American languages then briefly. And I was struck by one of the illustrations in the book in which you talk about how some languages, Dakota, I think was one of them, where you can't say my land. Now, I think I'm right in saying that you say that possession, most languages, perhaps all languages, have some way of saying what's mine and yours. Mm -hmm. But in some languages, you can't own, you literally can't own the land in the language. And that I find fascinating in the way it reflects an entire worldview, doesn't it? An entire ethical approach to the created world. My understanding, based on conversations with experts in Native American languages, such as David Rood, for instance, from the University of Colorado, is that, yes, there may be some cultural foundation for this attitude to land that is not ownable. The Dakota, uh, many other Siouan tribes, used to be nomadic, And uh, nomadic hunters and gatherers for whom land was like a sort of mother. You don't really own a mother. And if you plant something, then you almost violate the mother. So in a way, endearing yourself to land precludes you from owning it. Nowadays, of course, they have to say my land because there are land rights. So again, this sort of political, new political situation changes the language because it is white people's notions that percolate into the language. We'll just show you how quickly languages change and how you have to apply scientific methodologies of comparative Mm. linguistics, comparing languages in order to see where they're from, which in Mm. a way takes us to Basque. I was just going to ask about Basque because one of the... I can't quite understand this. You might be able to explain it to me. I can completely understand how there are multiple different families of language, say, in on the island of New Guinea. And I can understand how there might be some different families of language in somewhere like uh, Western Europe. But if I'm right in saying Basque is completely unrelated to any other European language and maybe any other language at all. And if that's the case, how come it's there? Basque is what we call language isolate, and there are quite a few in New Guinea. There are also quite a few in South America, and some scattered across Asia. For instance, uh, South Asia, Burushaski is one. It's almost like you have sort of some families organized, and then you get orphans. You don't know where they come from. But mm. Basque has a long tradition of people trying to find the theory where it came from. There is a language, or there was, there isn't now, a language called Iberian, which only survived in some inscriptions, 
And according to the gram of Basque, it is quite possible that Iberian actually was related to Basque. But of course, even if it's true, which is by no means proven, it will form a tiny, tiny little family. So what is it? Well, other people say Basque is a little bit like Caucasian because you have some particular grammatical features. Other people say other things. It's quite possible that Basque is a remnant of bigger families that were there before Europeans, as we know them, arrived on the Iberian Peninsula. So everyone else was gotten rid of, Basque is the only remainder. Basque, in all likelihood, together with some other languages we know little about, like Pelasgian or whatever, a remnant of some previous population which was just uh, annihilated by European invaders, and now it's all we have. Am I right in saying that the territories over which Basque is spoken are um, somewhat more inaccessible than many other territories in Western Europe. So there's a kind of, a bit like the island of New Guinea, there's a kind of geographical inaccessibility that helped preserve the language. I think you're right, yes. I think mountains are wonderful for preserving languages. Just look at the Caucasus. It's Mm. another situation where you have almost a language per village. In Amazonia, I said that there are 350 extant languages. But before the European invasion, there probably were many more, and again, there are more sort of figures than facts we have. I would estimate at least a thousand languages, and guess where these languages disappeared first? Exactly where, say, Brazil Mm. was discovered in 1500 by Pedro Álvaro Cabral, Mm. uh, just from the mouth of the Amazon. They just went. I want to ask about gender. Because I think you say that every language has some way of distinguishing male and female, but that the number of different genders when we were talking about the grammar of a language varies considerably. And Estonian, I think I'm right in saying, doesn't have any. We're familiar with he, she, it. But Diribal in Australia has four genders and there are eight in some languages. So can you give us some idea of what this denotes. Why are there so many different categories of gender in different spoken languages around the world? Well, again, there are different types of explanation. One is because Estonian belongs to the Finno-Ugric family, which is part of the Uralic family. They don't have gender in their grammar, so you have just one personal pronoun for, say, he or she or it. Now, languages like Manambu, They only have only two genders, but the whole world is gendered. Every object is either masculine or feminine. And if it's important, because it's a patrilineal society, maybe, or long or big, then it's masculine. If it's small or round, or, you know, not so so important, then it's feminine. Now, Dirbal has this edible gender because they were nomadic hunters and gatherers who lived on a lot of vegetable food. I think they have... Now, if I remember, well, hundreds of uh, named plants. So Mm. that will also feed into this debate between people who argue for utilitarian nature of language and people who argue for intellectual nature of language because it's so utilitarian to have a separate gender for plants. Yes. Uh, for something edible, like you walk in the uh, jungle here in around Cairns and you see something, some attractive plant, And you don't have to say, oh, sorry, could you tell me, can I eat it or not? You don't have to say that. Because you can tell straight away from the gender. Yeah. And in Bantu languages like Swahili, you have a lot of 
up to 10 genders. The problem with many of them is that meanings are sometimes difficult to understand, so you really have to work through every single language. And in a way, it's almost like you have a pool of potential categories. You have gender, you have potentiality, you have lots of other things. Languages just go and grab a few. No language will have everything. But languages that have gender utilize it to maximum degree. Yeah. Well, that's a helpful introduction to the last area that I wanted to talk about, which was the death or the preservation of languages. And it's a helpful link because particularly in that fascinating example of Dirabel having edible vegetables, edible material as a gender, indicates how languages preserve the nuance and particularities of a way of living. There are, I think I'm writing saying something like five, six thousand estimated languages yeah. around the world. Is that a good estimate? Yeah, yeah, fine. And everywhere I've read in, in your book and, and elsewhere suggests that many of them are dying out. And according to that one statistic from the Cambridge Handbook of Endangered Languages, an mm-hmm. estimated 90% extraordinarily may have died out by the end of the century. So I wanted to first ask whether you think that estimate or that forecast was accurate but more importantly what do we lose when we lose languages well nick it's hard to know whether a forecast like that could be accurate or not because we colloquially use the word of language death in actual fact maybe a more precise term would be language obsolescence and demise Because languages, unless you kill out all the people, like uh, there was a group called Yana with whom Edward Sapir worked, and there was just one speaker left because they were all Mm. exterminated, was gone when the speaker died. Otherwise, the language kind of recedes, stops being spoken like the Great Barrier Reef. It doesn't disappear, it just loses its color. At the end, what we might be faced with is uh, just some people who remember a few words And is it dead yet or not? Uh, Well, it wouldn't be polite to the speakers to say it's dead because Mm. they're still there and they identify with it. But they Mm. lost much of the beauty and almost all of it. It's the case of the language Barea, which I exemplify in the book. I worked Mm. with the last fluent speaker, but after the fluent speaker died, there was someone else who could actually very happily give a list of 100 words. He couldn't talk. But then I sort of looked at 100 words, and the word for nose somehow is the same as in Portuguese. So it was this kind of language contracting, 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 until very little is left. Now, when people lose a language, they lose much of their connection with the past. They lose their identity. They lose their expressive power, and in many ways they lose the feeling of who they are. In some cases, there are just a few words left, and people are still trying to identify with these words and they try and pull something together. Are there examples of languages being resurrected? Well, I would be loath to give you any totally reliable examples. People talk about Hebrew, totally inappropriate. Uh, Hebrew was never dead. Hebrew was yes. uh, learned, was spoken by male population and uh, just it was a completely different story. But yes. yes, I think Maori was on its way down and now mm. it is on its way up and very much mm. up. And there are some attempts in Australia to at least get people not so much to resurrect the language, but to give people a little bit of hope. Well, at least we have a couple of words in common. So here we are. Mm. We are indigenous because we share these words or we, are, mm. we belong to a particular group. But the fact that these things occur 
shows that everyone values having a language of their own. It's like a yes. mark of, of who you are. And without a language, uh, you're basically bare in a way. Well, that's a lovely kind of connection to my closing question. The kind of the background theme to this series, to the podcast, is what light does the topic we have been talking about, what light does that topic shine on what it means to be human? Language is, of course, utterly central to that to our conception of humanity. So I wanted you just very briefly to reflect on what does the fecundity of language, the profusion of language, the commonalities of language, the differences of language, what in your many, many years of experience of so many languages, what does that say about our humanity? Well, I could answer just with one sentence saying that this fecundity of language is a utterly productive mechanism of cultural reproduction, generational reproduction, is what makes us human. And something that also creates continuity between generations and maybe gives people will to live in a way. And we don't really need necessarily to understand where language came from, but just with the power of language and the materials at hand, this is how humanity hopefully will survive. The book is called I Saw the Dog, How Language Works. Alexandra Aikenvold, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you. Next week, I'll be speaking to Minouche Shafiq about the new social contract. We owe each other more investment in each other. We owe each other more sharing of risks. But we also owe each other more in terms of work and contributions to the common good. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast. <laughs>